Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello again, everyone. Welcome to Tech Stuff. My name is Chris Bullett, and I am an editor here at HowStuffWorks.com. Sitting across from me, cracking up at my goofiness, is senior writer Jonathan Strickland. Seriously, guys, if you could hear our pre-show and post-shows, you would you would just you would think that the goofy stuff we do during the show is nothing in comparison. <laughs> nothing. Yeah. Well, so. let's start this episode off with a little listener mail. This listener mail comes from Jacob, a.k.a. Booger. And Jacob gave himself that nickname. <clears throat> I'm catching up to the present day podcast and am on USB versus Firewire. And I still haven't heard you guys mention AMD yet. Please talk about them since I think they're better than Intel in more than a few ways. Thanks, Jacob Booger. Well, Booger, we thought we'd talk a little bit about kind of microchips in general and how they're made. Um, we don't tend to, to break things down to company by company. Uh, but of course, Intel and AMD are both known for their microchip uh, architecture. Yeah, they, uh, for the uninitiated, these two are pretty much the, the big guys in the computer segment, like the personal computer. Intel and AMD are wrestling back and forth with one another on a day-to-day basis. Well, now, there are lots and lots and lots and lots of other companies who make microprocessors of different kinds. Right. Let's, let's be fair. Yes. When you say wrestling... Intel's kind of the enormous sumo wrestler, and AMD is like the luchador. Yes, but that doesn't necessarily mean that in this case the luchador is, you know, a lesser. Oh human no no no! Being. I'm just saying by market share. Okay, yes, by market share, yes. yes. Intel has the the lion's share of the market, um, but uh, there there are many many other uh, microprocessor manufacturers out there. Um, you know, some of whom are um, limiting their their work to one or you know one or two different products. Uh, you can find microprocessors in just about everything, anything that, that's electronic these days, because we've come to rely on them. Yeah. So, uh, so we much. also had another listener ask us about microchips, and I would like to apologize to that listener because I could not find your email and or tweet. Um, I know that you sent it to me, and so we wanted. And this listener wanted to know what microchips were, mm-hmm. and you know what they did, and how they were made. And so we were going to kind of talk about uh, a little bit of of what they do, but not a whole lot because we've talked about it before. Yes, we um, have. But a a microchip, you know, when you hear that term, you might think, well, what the heck is that? Technically, it's an integrated circuit. Yes. That's mm-hmm. what a microchip is. And so if you remember when we talked about the basics of electronics and electronic theory, a circuit is a pathway for electrons to flow through. Yes. The, and, of course, the flow of electrons we know better as electricity. Mm-hmm. At least that's the current definition. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I totally forgot that we went down that road last time. <laughs> All right. So, yes, a circuit is a pathway for electricity. Uh, integrated circuit is a, a special kind of circuit. Now, let's let's. I guess uh, you want to. Are we going to take the wayback machine here, or you want to just talk about the past? 
Uh, we could just talk about the past. All right. So, uh, because, Liz, uh, I, Liz, I don't uh, think anybody gassed up the Wayback Machine. Yeah. I think, well, right. Yeah. I, I noticed the last time I was pulling the, uh, the cord, it wasn't really, wasn't really starting up the way you would expect it to. Mm-hmm. So anyway, uh, back in the day, the day being long time ago, uh, circuits were much larger than they are today. Um, they, you could actually see each of the discrete elements pretty clearly because, uh, it was all on a, a much larger scale. And, um, we're going all the way back to vacuum tubes here. Oh, yes. I'm talking about. Okay. So vacuum tubes, uh, acted the way transistors do now. Mm-hmm. So, uh, let's, let's talk a little bit about what exactly they did. The whole purpose of it was to control the flow of electricity. It would be to allow electricity to flow through that part of the circuit. And you could even use it to amplify the the, the electricity if you needed to. Okay. <laughs> You're just staring at me now. Well, I wasn't planning on, on talking about vacuum tubes, so I didn't oh, prepare right. that part. Well, at any rate, uh, the problem with vacuum tubes is they were really big and they produced a lot of heat. They do produce a lot of heat. Yes. I can tell you that right now. I have a uh, a beaten up old amplifier that uses vacuum tubes, and not only do they produce a lot of heat, they're really heavy and unwieldy because they take up a lot of space. Yes, so those are all problems, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you've got it produces a lot of heat, takes up a lot of space, and they're really heavy. So the early computers were these enormous machines that generated. Uh, so much heat that it was hard to, to be in the same room as them. Um, and of course, it was hard to be in the same room anyway because they pretty much took up an entire room. I'll put it this way. You're not going to see a vacuum tube-powered iPod anytime soon because they take up a lot of space. Right. So You can't put that in your pocket. Yeah. No, you can't. That And, and in fact, the uh, the development of the semiconductor was what led to you know transistor radios, and that's when we started getting a lot of portable electronics because... Uh, it was possible to to throw a, a portable radio in your pocket instead of you know having to deal with the one that was plugged in you know at home on the, on the desk. Right, the the one that was almost the same size as the desk it was on. Yeah, the uh, yeah. So so vacuum tubes were limiting us quite a bit uh, because of their size. Because they would also burn out, mm-hmm. and if one burnt out, that meant that your whole system was no longer working and you would have to replace the burnt out tube. So we needed to find something that was smaller, generated less heat, was more reliable. And that ended up being the transistor. Yes. Now, uh, that was invented back in 1947. Mm -hmm. Uh, It would still be quite a while before we got transistors small enough to put them on like a circuit board. Mm -hmm. The earliest transistors were actually pretty large. Yeah. Um, And then, even then, you're still talking about a bunch of uh, discrete elements that you wire together to create a circuit. Yeah, yeah. Right? So, you, I mean, if you've done this, you might have a physics class that you've done where you've created a, an electric circuit this mm-hmm. way, mm-hmm. where, you know, you're using uh, wires to connect a, a various elements together, and then you hook it up to a battery. Mm-hmm. So, If you haven't, you should, because yeah. it's a lot of fun. And it's a good learning experience, but that's an aside. Right. So... The, the <laughs> re- off, sorry. Yeah, I know. Now I'm thrown off. Now I'm like, okay, wait, let me look Looking at my notes. For the notes. Notes, notes. So we're lo- let's talk about the complex circuits here. Okay. Um, there was a an issue called the tyranny of numbers. The tyranny of numbers. Have you heard about this? Wasn't that a mystery novel? Uh, no. Oh. Not, well, I mean, it, I'm going to say no. It could be true. I'm going to write it if there wasn't one. Right. Gotcha. No, uh, 
here's the here's the definition. Advanced circuits contained so many components and connections they were virtually impossible to build. This problem was known as the tyranny of numbers. Hmm. So that in other words, we get to a point where we can build circuits, right? And but in order to build them at the complexity that we need, the tools we have are too crude, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Using it, building it by hand is just, there's no way you can have the level of precision you need in order to build a circuit that small. Right. What could possibly be the solution to the tyranny of numbers problem? Let's see. Um, We've mentioned it before already. Hmm. The integrated circuit. Just say the integrated circuit. Okay, the integrated circuit. Very good. So in 1958, <laughs> you got Jack Kilby. Yes. And uh, Kilby was working at Texas Instruments. One of those aforementioned companies that makes lots and lots of different kinds of uh, microprocessors. That's correct. And Kilby at the time was brand new to the company. You know, He had only been working there for a little while and mm-hmm. had not earned any vacation yet. So there was a point where pretty much everyone went on vacation except for Kilby and he was left there pondering the tyranny of numbers problem. And he came up with this idea. He thought, well, what if you were to build an entire circuit out of one piece of material mm-hmm. and you would essentially carve out the different uh, elements that you would need out of that material, overlay it with some metal to be the connectors, and then you'd have an entire circuit printed more or less uh, on one single piece and you wouldn't have to build the individual elements. Mm-hmm. That's so the sen- idea behind the integrated circuit. I apologize. No, go ahead. Uh, so essentially he found a way to make the whole thing fit in a much more compact space. Right. And by using this method of carving away from a, a single element, a single chip, mm-hmm. really, uh, you could make the different individual um, parts of the circuit much, much smaller than you could before. Right. Um, Which is good. Because it, it has led to uh, lots and lots of very, very small devices. Well, this, that are this is in our yeah. Lives this now. is what eventually led up to Gordon Moore taking a look at the number of transistors uh, that engineers were able to fit onto a single one-inch diameter chip, yeah. and say, "Look, every at the time I think it was every twelve months yeah. they were doubling." Although, of course, today we talk about it being every two years. Um, Gordon, so Moore's law has slowed down over time, but it, it's still, you're still talking about doubling over a, a set time limit, which is pretty amazing. Yeah. Cause, you know, we're in the, we're in the billions now. So, um, so how, well, first of all, we, I guess we should talk about the material they use to build these chips. It's silicon. Yes. It's not just silicon, it's extremely pure silicon. Yep. As a matter of fact, uh, when I was doing research on this, I found a, a video by uh, a different part of our company. Yes. Uh, the Science Channel did a, a piece on silicon, and it, it's um, really fascinating what they do because they have to uh, to melt down lumps of the material to to get you know basically to reform it in the shape that they need for microprocessors. But uh, it has to be extremely pure, so they have to clear out the chamber chamber with argon gas to make sure that there's no air in there at all. Right. Melt it down and then uh they they create essentially what looks like a giant silicon pencil. Yeah, it's a big, it's a big cylinder. cylinder. Yeah, cylinder of silicon. And then uh they put the this cylinder through um well they use they use a very fine wire to cut wafers. 
Yes. It's wafer thin. Yes, it is. Um, as a matter of fact, it's, it's just a few millimeters thick. Yeah. yeah. Each, each layer. Right. And, and, um, so they're, they cut these, these slices off and each slice becomes its own, uh, the own, uh, its own silicon wafer that you use to imprint, uh, circuitry onto. And you could end up using, uh, one wafer to produce dozens and dozens of chips. Yes, as a matter of fact, uh, every once in a while you'll see a picture in the news of some dignitary visiting a computer plant, and they'll hold up a what looks like a giant disk, and you're going, "Wait a minute, that's way too big to fit in my computer." Well, yes, this is this is a, a cross section of that giant cylinder, imprinted with, and in, in general, one, the ones I've seen where they show where they're holding it up, there you can see that there's something etched on on the silicon. Well, those are all the different individual chips, or what would become chips if they were. You know, uncontaminated by whoever it is holding it up. Right. At the, at the end of the process, once everything's been printed, you, you chop that, uh, wafer into the various, uh, uh actual individual chips. Yep. And by you, chop, I mean you actually use a very fine saw. Yeah. It's a diamond saw, as a matter yes. of fact, that they use to, uh, cut the, uh, the slice of silicon up into lots and lots of little chips. But we've, We've left out we've a, skipped a big we've skipped bunch a whole of bunch of stuff. All right. So, and, um, well, the process is, is known as, uh, photolithography. Right. And it's been in use for several years. Several, by several, I mean many. It's actually kind of a, it's really a neat, neat idea. All right. So let's, let's start with, you've got your, your silicon. Mm-hmm. Um, also, well, we'll, we'll go ahead and say where this stuff takes place because we're talking about, uh, elements on the, these chips that are just a few nanometers in width. So any kind of impurity, any mote of dust that got on this thing is going to ruin it. A mote of dust would be enormous compared yes. to one of the transistors on these chips. So exactly. yeah, yeah. So you can't have any sort of, of dust in there. Well, think about your environment for a second. Uh, just the dust in the air alone in your environment right now, unless you're in a clean room, is going to be way too much to ever try and produce a, a microchip. Yeah, so at least one that will function. Right. And we're humans. We give off lots of, uh, lots of dust, dead yes. skin cells. Yep. Tons of dust every day. Uh, if you look at the entire human population. Yes. Literally tons of dust. So the, these clean rooms can't have that. They, they don't have the luxury of being able to have that sort of dust flying around. So in order to prevent it, they have massive air conditioning systems that circulate the air in these these clean rooms. These clean rooms can be enormous, by the way, like the size of a warehouse. Yes. Uh, but in most of them, the air conditioning system is so powerful that it can completely circulate all the air in that room under 10 minutes. Yep. It's pretty impressive. And – uh this is where uh, Intel's famous uh, bunny suit campaign came from yes. back in the 1990s. Sadly, not the kind of bunny suit I was thinking. No, no, the bunny the bunny suits are actually they uh they they look like they're in some sort of high-tech firefighting gear because they're uh suits that they wear where they have hoods over their heads with a visor in them. And uh this basically keeps dust out of the air by, you know, if you seal Keeping in the humans. Inside, yeah, it keeps it inside the suit. So if the humans, then they can't uh, shed inside the clean room. So. Yeah, and, and I remember in that video you were referencing, they actually talk about how the air in these rooms is, is cleaner than the air you'll find in hospitals. That doesn't surprise because me. Because of the way, the, the speed and the filters that they use. Mm-hmm. So we've got this, this uh, environment that is, it's not dust free because you're never going to get that unless you're in a complete vacuum. Um, but it's about as limited as you possibly can yeah. be and still be on, on earth. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, now let's talk about the actual process of photolithography. Yeah, but as we get into this, you're going to see that we have, uh, improved on, uh, Dr. Kilby's process. I'm assuming he's a doctor. I didn't see that part. Yeah. Uh, well, on, he's on, an on, engineer at any rate. Yeah. Uh, on, on Kilby's process for, uh, creating, uh, microprocessor, micro, microchips. Right. Uh, because this is a very, very, uh, sophisticated way of doing it. Right. So you start with your, your pure silicon, uh, wafer. Yes. That you have sliced off of the um, the whole uh, the cylinder. Mm-hmm. Then the next thing you need to do is you need to uh, uh, create a mask. Mm-hmm. Now the mask is, and this is not in all forms of lithography, but we'll get into that. The mask is essentially a pattern. Yes, right. It's the pattern. Of, it's what the chip is supposed to look like at the end. Uh, if you if you've ever worked in photography and uh, with film, not with with the with the digital camera. And you are trying to make part of the picture a little darker when you're developing it. You would hold up uh, something basically to block the light from getting to that part of the uh, to the photosensitive paper. Well, that's basically what the mask is: is blocking light from a very high energy uh, ultraviolet source, which right. is going to shine onto the silicon wafer. Uh, and the mask is blocking that. Now, why would we do this? Well, it's because the silicon is not just silicon at that point. They have also uh, overlaid on top of that a piece of uh, photosensitive film. Right. Um, right. So you've got this you, – you put the photosensitive film on top of the wafer and then you've got this uh, this mask that a uh, – that ultraviolet light shines through. Mm-hmm. Uh, when the ultraviolet light contacts the wafer, like there's going to be some parts that the mask blocks and some part that the mask lets through, right? Right. So the parts where the mask lets through the light, the light hits the wafer, and uh, when you when you are finished with this first process and you wash the film uh, away, the it takes anything that that the light has contacted it gets essentially carved away. Well, basically, what happens is that the uh, the high energy ultraviolet light causes that film to break up. It, you know, it, it uh, the film doesn't react to the light very right. well. So that's the point. They wash it with water, and that uh, washes away the broken away bits. But you still have that protective film on the places where the light didn't touch because of the mask. Well, you're right. You're right. Yeah, I, I worded it incorrectly. Well, is- no, no, no. I was just uh, clarifying, and then. Um, they uh, once they rinse that away, they they bake it. Right. And then they use a process called etching, in which they uh, use chemicals to dissolve the remaining protective film. Uh, to basically, you know, now you have just the etched wafer of silicon. Right. So, so in there's other no words, more film there. And and also point. and also the stuff that was no longer covered by the film, which had been, you know, the film got zapped away wherever the light touched it. Yes, that gets etched away. Yes, so that's where you've actually carved away the the material, and what's left standing is the stuff that was not touched by the light. That's correct. That's just one round. You may have to do this dozens of times before you have actually carved out all the elements on your uh, your your circuit. Mm-hmm. So, well there's another part of the process too, the doping part in which they change the electrical properties of the silicon. Right. Doping means that you are purposefully introducing impurities into the material in order to change its its um well the way it it what either conducts or uh insulates I mean, that's, that's what a semiconductor is. Under certain circumstances, it can conduct electricity and others it does not. 
Right. Or it can conduct some electro, uh, electricity, but at not at a rapid rate, right. as rapid as it would or flow. Or maybe at just certain temperatures. Exactly. So but again, this all depends upon the impurities that you introduce mm-hmm. into it. So at the base, you have to have the pure system so that it doesn't conduct electricity at all. Otherwise, you do have a chip that's not going to work. Because right. again, the the ultimate goal here is to be able to direct the flow of electrons in a very specific way. And of course, if your entire chip does that, if it doesn't, if it's it's not specific at that point, and so you'd have a, a broken chip. Mm-hmm. So um, they, as Jonathan pointed out a moment ago, um, they they continue to do this layer by layer by layer, so that um, again, you're taking up less space because you have layers uh, of material on top of one another. Which, you know, there, it's no longer, it no longer requires it to take up so much physical space because it's all basically sandwiched on top of one another. But then there's the, uh, the, uh, metallization process. Right. So you've carved away everything that doesn't need to be there. Right. It's kind of like a sculptor. Yeah, it you is. You carve everything away that doesn't look like a circuit. <laughs> Very nice. It's essentially, that's, no, that's no, kind of what, how it works. I'm on board with that. But, but again, it's on a, an incredibly tiny level. And the reason it can be so tiny, you know, we've talked about before that the nanoscale is so small that you cannot view it through a light microscope. Yes. Well, that's because they're not using the, – the way they can get it this small is they're not using visible light. Again, they're using ultraviolet light. Yes. And in fact, Intel uh, uses um, – is using a process called extreme ultraviolet Lithography uh, in their latest processors, which are the ones that have like the 32 nanometer transistors, which is crazy. I figured they were building microchips uh, sliding downhill on a uh, street luge. You're wrong. And then so, uh, pulling tricks. No, no, that's not extreme. Not that extreme. Oh. Yeah, it's not going to be in the X Games. But uh, so the metallization, cool. this is where <laughs> you've built all these elements by carving away the stuff that doesn't belong. Yeah. But you still have to connect them together, mm-hmm. right? You know, yeah. This is normally where you would be building wires. Well, the way they build wires in uh, uh, in these transistor or in these uh, these circuits, it's actually kind of similar to the process we just described, except what they do is they put a layer of metal um, – on top of the the wafer, and then again, you put the this uh, this UV sensitive photoresist on top of that metal. Yep. And uh, you have another mask. This mask is going to block out all the places that where uh, you don't want wiring. Actually, it blocks out the places where you do want wiring, right? Oh, right, 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 right. Yes, so, you want the places you want protected. Yes, and want to remain. Yeah. So it'll yes. block it'll block light wherever it blocks light. That's where a wire is going to be. Wherever light comes through, that's going to carve away this metal. So again, you go through another process where you run it through the the system. The light ends up hitting the cert, the designated areas on the wafer, um, and that ends up going to that's going to end up uh, breaking down the the metal so that you are left with just the wires that you want. Mm-hmm. You've carved away everything you don't want. Uh, again, you may have to do this process several times because uh, in order to get all the connections you need, um, you may need to do several layers mm-hmm. of wires. Right. Up to, I think, five, I think, was the last I had read. Right. But it's, um, it's again, very similar to the uh, lithography process of actually carving out the chip itself. Yep. And... uh See, uh, this is all very cool, and it has led to a number of, uh, you know, all kinds of different chips that are getting smaller and smaller and allowing Moore's Law to continue, more or less. Uh, except, 
you know, for the laws of physics, which make things difficult. Well, I mean, it's already made things difficult because remember when I mentioned the extreme ultraviolet lithography? Yes, I do remember when you mentioned that. Yeah, because it was just like three minutes ago or something. So – here was here was a barrier they that Intel had to find a way, and I know that I'm probably ticking off our our listener who wanted to hear about AMD and not Intel, but um, Intel had an, a problem when they were going to switch to EUV, mm-hmm. and it's it's just one of those fundamental things. The wavelength that they are using, uh, the EUV wavelength, is at 13.4 nanometers. Wow. Okay, at that size, that is so small that Practically every material absorbs it. <laughs> so if you were to shine it on anything, it's just going to get absorbed. Mm-hmm. It doesn't necessarily work if you uh, if you need it for lithography. They found that if they used the EUV in a vacuum and they used reflective surfaces instead of lenses to focus and direct this light, they could then use it in lithography. Wow. And there's also another form of lithography we can mention, which is the electron beam lithography. Yes. Now, in this case, if you were to use electron beam lithography, you can get very, very, very precise and build these incredibly tiny structures. Um, and you don't need a mask. You can just put it through a computer program and the computer program will direct the beam properly so that uh, you don't necessarily – you don't have to build the mask for the light to shine through. However, it's a much slower process than photolithography, so it's not really considered a viable alternative for the mass market right now. Right. But you were talking about reaching the, the physical limits of, of, uh, size, which doesn't have anything to do with necessarily our manufacturing process. No, that's it, true. It has to do with very fundamental physical laws, uh, on the quantum level. Right. At a certain point, those dividers in between the, uh, the pathways that electricity, uh, travel down, once they get to a certain point, the electrons are going to be able to pass through them and that's going to cause a serious problem. Yeah, it's called electron tunneling and uh it, it it's a really to read a to read a description of electron tunneling is really really bizarre. Mm-hmm. Cuz uh, imagine that you come up to a wall, mm-hmm. all right? You're yes. standing on one side of the wall. You lean against the wall and then suddenly you're on the other side of the wall. You didn't right. didn't necessarily pass through the wall. You just started on one side and you ended up on the other. That's kind of like electron tunneling. It doesn't actually move through the material. It just, it's so small. It, the, the material is so thin, the electron acts as, it, it acts like there's nothing there. It, it might as well not have been there in the first place. Right. So that's the problem is if you, if you build these components, um, too small, mm-hmm. then the electrons are no longer controllable. And again, just like in the situation where I said if the entire chip were to conduct electricity, it would not work. Same sort of thing. Yeah, you can't direct the electrons if they can pass through everything. Mm -hmm. You know, so uh in that case we will have to look at alternatives to the transistor. Yes. Um and there are lots of engineers working on this problem. Uh, usually, sometimes, sometimes they find out by switching to a different material, they can actually get a little smaller than they expected, mm-hmm. uh, which Intel found out when they, they switched from one kind of metal that they were using in their, their, uh, chips to a different kind. Mm-hmm. But eventually we are going to hit that limit and it's not going to be that long from now. Um, but that doesn't mean that we won't find a new way to work around the problem. No, I'm sure. I'm sure it won't be long. Before we know something anyway. Yep. 
So that's how microchips are made. We kind of talked about what they did. Uh, and, you know, there are several different companies that produce these, like Paulette was saying. It's not just for computers. It's for all sorts of electronics. Yeah, it's it's funny because, um, you know, for a company with this long and storied a past as Texas Instruments has, for example, um, you know, that you just don't – they don't make uh, chips for – Computers that end up on people's desktops, at least not anymore. Right. Um, but yeah, AMD uh, is is one of those companies that uh, has had a hard time getting a toehold in the consumer desktop market, um, partially due to you know just the fact that they're they're you know trying to get out the uh, eight hundred pound gorilla or maybe eight hundred ton gorilla in the case of Intel because Intel was one of the very very first uh, chip manufacturers to make. Uh, microprocessors for home and uh, work computers. Yeah, they also made some very shrewd partnerships yes, they with did. various companies, which uh, actually has has gained them a little trouble in the court systems uh, for anti-competitive behaviors. Yes, that's true. But uh, that's a totally different story. Maybe one. What maybe what we should do is put down on a, a podcast list at some point uh, the story of Intel versus AMD. That would be fun. That would be a that would be a good way to put it. That would be less technical and more kind of political. But it's it's an interesting well, it's story. Businessy. Um, but I I have something else we can talk about very quickly. Okay, what's that? It's a little listener mail. This listener mail comes from Chris. Now, Chris says, <clears throat> this, by the way, was directed not just to tech stuff, but to stuff you should know. You smell, and you started this war. Why would you ever be so unwise as to start a war with tech stuff? This is a war that you cannot win. This is a war you will not win. We expect your surrender to be handed to our leader, Jonathan Strickland, in the form of a sticky note with the words, You win, written in black sharpie. We expect your surrender soon. And then there's some uh, French, which I'm not going to attempt to say, because je ne parle pas français bien, malheureusement. <laughs> but this is from Chris. Now, Chris, it, it comes down to to this. Um, we're going we're gonna to just shoot straight here. <laughs> we like Josh and Chuck. <laughs> They're nice guys. We even like stuff you should know. Yeah. I listen to it. I'm a fan. They do good stuff. Occasionally they pull us on. Um, so, I used to be on the show. Right. So, so our rivalry is mostly funny. And, uh, the only reason I'm saying this now is I don't want it to spiral out of control. Cause just the other day I noticed that Chuck was not, uh, his normal chipper self. And it turns out he's worried that people don't like him. I mean, Earlier today, I found him weeping oh. in the corner, sucking oh. his own thumb. Why and would you someone tell with, that? I know, well, I mean, it's probably, he probably wouldn't want me to share that, but his psyche is weak, people. <laughs> I'm just saying, oh, they're not so made cool. of the stern stuff that Palette and I are made of. You know, we are like Teflon. It just slides right off us. But Josh and Chuck, they're like, well, they're like teddy bears. <laughs> Emotionally <laughs> vulnerable teddy bears. Yes, yes, it's true. It's true. Thanks for writing, Chris. <laughs> if any of you would like to write us, our address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com. And we have a, a cool fan page on Facebook now. So if you're on Facebook, do a search for Tech Stuff. Join our fan page because uh, we're trying to build up a nice, strong community, have more interaction with our fans. We always like that. And we also have our own Twitter feed. Yep, we decided to uh, to have a Tech Stuff podcast Twitter feed now. So instead of just following Jonathan and I individually, you can follow 
us together. Right. The uh, the handle, by the way, is techstuffhsw. So just go to twitter.com slash techstuffhsw, and you'll find us there. You can also find uh, uh, both Facebook pages and Twitter pages for the other podcasts on How Stuff Works. Yep, so uh, if you've been putting off tuning in to some of the others uh, because you just hadn't had a reason, now you got a reason, they're right there, people. Yeah, check them out. And Chris and I will talk to you again really soon. If you're a Tech Stuff fan, be sure to check us out on Twitter. Tech Stuff HSW is our handle. And you can also find us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Tech Stuff HSW. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. And be sure to check out the new Tech Stuff blog, now on the HowStuffWorks homepage. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?